Our second gospel lesson today is from the first chapter of Mark, starting in verse 4. John was in the wilderness calling for people to be baptized to show that they were changing their hearts and lives and wanted God to forgive their sins. Everyone in Judea and all the people of Jerusalem went out to the Jordan River and were being baptized by John as they confessed their sins. John wore clothes made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. He announced, one stronger than I is coming after me. I'm not even worthy to bend over and loosen the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. About that time, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. While he was coming up out of the water, Jesus saw heaven splitting open, and the Spirit like a dove coming down on him. And there was a voice from heaven, you are my son, whom I dearly love, in you I find happiness. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Lee Strobel was an award-winning investigative journalist and a self-proclaimed atheist. Life was good for him and his wife, until one day his wife, an agnostic herself, became a Christian. And Strobel thought his life was ruined. How could she make such an uneducated and senseless decision, he thought. So his first thought was divorce. How to move ahead in life without this silliness involved in their lives. After all, she even wanted to start giving money to the church. Uh, something that Strobel abhorred. So around 1980, he began his pursuit of disproving Christianity by disproving the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He used his journalism training to study all sides of the issue, reading famous atheists and also famous Christian apologists. And the more he tried to disprove Jesus, the more that Jesus kept on proving to be more attractive and believable than his atheistic worldview. So in 1981, Strobel committed his life to Jesus and subsequently became an author and a pastor. His story is told in the book he wrote called The Case for Christ, and it's followed up, you may have heard of it, and followed up with many other books along those lines. Now, not everyone comes to faith in Jesus by trying to disprove Jesus' existence, and the style of making an argument for Jesus, like a courtroom setting, does not work for everyone. But God met Lee Strobel in a powerful way. And God met him using the very thing that Strobel knew. Journalism. Now the Magi, the three wise people, and probably not three, uh, they, they were not kings like we sometimes say. They were a priestly class in Persia or Babylon, and they were experts in the occult. The Magi were professional astrologers and stars, or professionals in dream interpretation. So these astrologers somehow began to see this bright star shining over the region of Israel. How long was it there? 
And how did the Magi discern what they were seeing? How did they know that this star, that they say, they say it was his star, the star of the newborn king of the Jews? How did the Magi have any leaning towards this without any sense of this Old Testament scripture that was in front of the chief priests and the scribes who they would come to talk to? So the Magi follow the star first to Jerusalem to enter the court of the king, of King Herod. That is where they expected to meet the new king, after all, like one would. Perhaps this king was the newborn son of Herod. But Herod brings in everyone to help interpret what in the world is going on. Because it tells us, right, that Herod was troubled by this news. And that all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. Herod wanted to know exactly where the Messiah was supposed to be born. Why? Because he did not want any type of uprising. Herod, after all, wanted to remain in power. And the chief priests and the scribes report to him that little old Bethlehem, not too far, not too far from Jerusalem, is the location where the Messiah was to be born. So we know this story. Herod deceitfully sends the Magi to go and look for the child. His reason is for the Magi to return to him so that he can squash this child and a potential rebellion before it ever starts. But the star, the star that had guided the, that had guided the Magi to Jerusalem, returns, right? And it guides the Magi right to where they need to go in Bethlehem, right over the home where Jesus is. So the Magi get there, and they fall down and worship. And then they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. So they obey the dream, and they return another way. We are so used to these Magi. They're often in our nativity scenes from the beginning of December until Christmas. But on Epiphany, we actually celebrate their arrival. And most likely, their arrival was sometime way after Jesus was born not just 12 days after it. And I want us to understand this together today. Matthew is writing the most Jewish of all of the Gospels. Of any of the writers, Matthew is writing to the most Jewish audience, trying to prove that Jesus is indeed the Messiah of Israel. And Matthew has these very foreign and very different outsiders, the Magi, come to worship this baby Jesus in the second chapter of the story. You know those bad kids from middle school and high school? The ones that you talk to your friends and even to your parents about, usually to prove that you weren't as bad as them? They seemed irredeemable and unreachable. In the Jewish world, people like the Magi, pagan astrologers, outsiders, would have been unredeemable, would have been unreachable. The Magi were experts in stars and in dreams, and God spoke to these Magi in their language, stars and dreams. This is where God is at work in this story of the Magi. God is working behind the scenes in stars and in dreams. Friends, God will reveal who God is to all people. That's the message of Epiphany. Matthew did not think that this was a reality that would come far in the distant future 
whenever God's kingdom would be fully realized. No, he believed that this revelation was occurring right now, in this moment, from now on, starting with the Magi. And so I wonder, is God trying to speak to you or to your neighbors and your family, your friends, your co-workers, in whatever interests and whatever proclivities they have? Is God trying to speak to us in dreams? So often it's like we think that we have to have our life in order before we encounter God. But in this story, God encounters the Magi by leading them with the very thing they knew and understood most. Not the Jewish scripture, but the study of stars and conjecture about what they symbolize. God will use a star and dreams. God will use anything to reveal God's self to us. Then we jump ahead about 30 years to John the Baptist in the wilderness. Now, during Advent, we spent a lot of time with John the Baptist, so I'm not going to rehash his entire message. But by Mark's account, John the Baptist's reach was huge. Everyone in Judea and was heading out to be baptized, it tells us, including all of the people of Jerusalem. And I'm always tempted to think that the people were just going out to John because of the wonder and spectacle of it all. Have you heard about this prophet out in the wilderness? We should go check it out this weekend. It sounds crazy, but it had to be a lot more than that. Because when people were going out to meet John and to be baptized by him, they were confessing their sins and preparing to receive the Messiah. This was more than a viral trend. I wonder how excited, how nervous, how desperate were people as they made this trek out into the wilderness. What did they expect to happen? So like the others, Jesus made this trek to the desert. And he appeared before John to be baptized. Now, now the other gospel writers, they want to make a big deal about how John didn't want to baptize Jesus. Or they anticipated the questions about why would Jesus need to be baptized? He doesn't have any sinfulness and things like that. Mark is not really concerned with any of those things. For him, Jesus was associating himself with this called out people of Israel and is performing a gesture of repentance with all of them. And what's incredible in this story, right? It's not the action of Jesus being baptized. We just hear that he goes down to the water and comes back out. It's what happens as soon as Jesus comes up out of the water, right? Jesus saw heaven being ripped open. And the spirit descends like a dove on him. And he hears the voice of his heavenly father. You are my son whom I dearly love. In you I find happiness. Or with you I am well pleased now, before this point, did Jesus fully know his identity as God's son? I'm not sure. But I think from this point of his baptism on, Jesus could always look back and be assured once again of who he is. Remember, Jesus has performed no ministry to this point. He has not done any miracles, not done any teaching, and God the Father is proud of him. Friends, baptism is about our identity. We can follow Jesus into the waters and hear Jesus proclaim to us, you are my child. Baptism serves 
serves as a reminder of who we are as it marks us. I love in one of the prayers at a funeral, we pray these words, before they were ours, they were yours, O God. A reminder that our primary identity in this life is as children of God. Friends, a lot of problems in our lives result from when we forget that primary identity. Sometimes we just ignore our identity as children of God altogether. We take on identity labels about family position, about job, or other roles that we have. Or we take on really negative identities, like worthless, never enough, ugly. These identities get all mixed around in our heads and in how we live. And we live out of our identities all of the time, whether we do it on purpose or not. And baptism reminds us that before all other identities, you are a child of God. A child whom God loves just because you are. Do you hear that today? God loves you just because of who you are. God made you, formed you in God's image, and loves you. You do have all sorts of other identities, but those should always be subject to being a child of God. Life gets out of whack when we try to place any of those other identities above the identity that God has given us in our baptism. So I invite you today to follow Jesus into the baptismal waters. Friends, if you've never been baptized in your life, I would love to talk with you about baptism and what it means in your life. In fact, talk to me right after the service today. I would be happy to schedule a time to talk with you about baptism. And if you have been baptized, we are going to have a time in worship today where we come forward to the waters. You're going to be invited to touch the water, and I'll share with you a reminder about who you are. Remember that you are God's child. Maybe you need that on your mirror every day. Remember that you are God's child. Maybe you need it at the end of the day or after a hard conversation with that person that you just cannot get along with. Remember that you are God's child. God loves you. God does not think of you with any distaste or wish that you were somehow fundamentally different. Remember that you are God's child. Let us pray. Lord God, we often have trouble remembering that we are your child first. And God, for whatever reasons in our lives, we often proclaim other identities and sometimes take on really, really destructive ones in what we tell ourselves or based on what others have told us. And Lord, you are welcoming us back again to these waters to these waters to hear that we are loved, that we are your children, that regardless of what we have done, 
and before we even ever have known it, that you love us, that you call us your own. Lord, we thank you that you reveal that identity to us today and always. And I ask that in these moments ahead, that your grace would touch each of our lives with that reminder. In Christ's name, amen.